I've seen my father four times in the last 22 years. I left him and Esfahan in 1987 under a scratchy blanket in the back of a brown jeep when I was eight and Baba was 33. Now I'm 30. At the start of each brief visit, in Oklahoma or London or Madrid or Istanbul, the man who greets me is different from the last, and so much older. It's an icy palm to the breast, a jolt of the universe that I knew to expect after the second and third times. He will have changed, I remind myself as I scan airport terminals and approach restaurant tables with a lone man waiting. But the trips are short, and later I always change him back, overriding the signs of aging, the cane, the white hair, the extra skin that hides the flash of mischief in his eyes. My Baba will always be 33. A hard 33, like Jesus, or the number of green prayer beads that he counts with both hands, despite his devotion to hedonism and his own personal divinity. Sometimes when drunk, Baba says things like, I am God. What is God besides science and poetry? Then he recites twenty minutes of perfect hafez. When I was three, I'd fling my arms up and shout, I'm God too! And he'd lift me up to the sky, my baby fine russet hair falling on his face, indistinguishable from his own. Every evening I waited for him on our front stoop, and when I spotted him walking down the road, I ran over and said hello to his hidden pastries first. Hello, Zulbia. Hello, Baklava. I said to his bulging jacket. Sour cherries, ice cream? Are you in there? He pretended to be offended. What about your Baba? He'd say. Baba used to ask me to walk on his back. My toes digging into his flesh, I felt his muscles shift and loosen like tectonic plates. He was the ground. Now those plates have drifted far away, and the ground has vanished. I can't shake this image of him. Baba, ageless at thirty-three, forever reveling and devoted to himself, my toy spatula dripping chocolate ice cream on his soft, massive back as he hummed. Baba and I used to read The Little Prince together and eat sour plums. I had two editions of that book because Maman wanted me to learn English, but Baba and I read from the Farsi one. He would never ruin a good story with lessons or taint any pleasure with added practicality. Sometimes, when the Islamic Republic didn't intercept Cartoon Hour, a single hour of children's programming for the entire week, we watched the animated version. Every Tuesday, we watched the girl in the rose bloom while he salted cucumbers for me and checked my teeth. Strangely, for a dentist, his pockets were always full of candy. On our last visit, a year ago in Istanbul, I noticed two of his back teeth missing, and I cried for most of the afternoon. As a kid, I got the majority of Baba's attention, even though my younger brother, Kion, was a clone of him, chubby with a huge personality and scornful charm that made people crave his affection. Gradually, he grew into a brooding, solemn child, which made him even cuter. At two, he started memorizing the songs of the Iranian Revolution. A caged bird, he crooned, all doleful and lispy and chunky-fisted, is heartsick of walls. Shit, Parijun, Baba said to Maman. Are you making him a revolutionary? I sing him songs about geese and rabbits. She was twenty-eight and vigilant. Then how did he learn this garbage? 
I don't know. How did Nilu learn all those dirty songs? She said, knowing very well that I learned them on trips to Baba's village. Let's worry about the one growing up with zero impulse control, not the one with a heart for the people. I'm sure Baba scoffed in defense of me then, or maybe just in protest of impulse control. It seemed that Keon had learned to turn on the radio by himself and had developed strong feelings for the droning, melodic propaganda music sanctioned by the mullahs. Baba just shook his head and looked the other way. A few months later, Keon got the mumps on top of all of his fat and officially became the most desirable child on the block, since in Iran, juvenile attractiveness is measured by sheer volume of flesh. So he got his attention from other places and was fine without Baba's. Like many young men in Iran, Baba went from the highs and stupors of being in love to the highs and stupors of opium. He became an addict and would sneak away at night. Sometimes he lost his temper in awful ways. These instances were rare and, I later learned, correlated with opium rages from which I was mostly shielded. But I saw things. A blurry maman out by the swimming pool. The whip of a garden hose. A shriek. Afterward, he would try to atone by picking baskets of fruit for her from faraway gardens or buying her beautiful clothes or writing poetry that he hid around the house. He raised angry hands at his brothers, too. Not often, though. It's hard to imagine it, those same fleshy, nimble hands that could make the worst toothache go away with a flick of the wrist and a press of the gauze. Those same brothers he employed as technicians in his dental office just because they needed employing, though neither had any training beyond farming. Baba, a giant with his thick red mustache and full laugh, green counting beads in one hand, his other hand full of pistachios or sour cherries, was a fixture you could see coming from far down the street. He was always chomping on something. He smoked and drank and ate sumptuously and memorized entire books of old poetry. His body was huge and covered in red hair from head to toe. Every Friday he piled his family into the car and we were dragged to Ardestun village as if by hidden magnets in Baba's shoes. As we approached the village, everyone's accents slowly changed. Chubby Kion kept on chanting revolution songs and love songs and songs of martyrdom and death. The air of the cage is the death of the soul. Our voices lost their city refinement, and we began to talk with lilts and drawls and idioms, tongue smacking, voices rising.